Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. Well, good morning, church family. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Craig, and I'm going to be opening God's Word with you this morning. So if you have a Bible, please open it to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5. We're going to be in verse 11. Through 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 21. I'm going to read this passage, and then I'm going to pray. 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 21. Here we go. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you might have an answer to those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are, quote, out of our mind, as some say, it's for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all, Therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. From now on, we regard no one in a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are new creation. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made him who had never experienced sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. God, your word is powerful. It makes wise the simple. And I pray this morning, God, that your spirit would move in our hearts so that we would see the victory of Jesus. And we would see that his victory uh, creates a new community. And so I pray that through your word we would uh, see our identity about who you say we are, those who trust in Christ, that we are this new creation. And that you've given us the ministry of reconciliation. Father, I pray that we would all believe this and we would trust your word and we leave here transformed because of the power of your spirit. That's all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. November 8th, 2016 was an historic day. It was the day that India's Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, made an announcement that sent shockwaves across his country. Modi told his country uh, that by midnight tonight, so midnight November 8th, the 500 rupee note and the 1,000 rupee note would no longer be legal tender. This was absolutely shocking. 
Uh, this was a country that's at the time was 90% uh, uh, Ca- of cash dependent, ninety percent cash dependent. All ninety percent of their transactions took place via cash, and the two most popular forms of currency were the five hundred rupee note and the one thousand rupee note. And Modi said, by midnight tonight, they become nothing more than pieces of paper. And this was such a risky move. India at the time was the world's third largest economy. They're one of the world's fastest growing economies, uh, and this was risky. Why risk everything to do this? Well, uh, this was an attempt to weed out corruption uh, that was causing India to grow at an unsustainable rate. See, they were the world's third fastest growing economy, but only 2% of their citizens paid taxes. Uh, in a, in a cash-dependent society, it's really difficult to track things that are happening. Uh, not only are most transactions happening in cash, cash but actually 90% of India's workforce was uh, what's called a, um, an informal work sector, meaning that these people were paid in cash. And so on November 8th, Modi says, all this stops. What he was doing was he was trying to to weed out corruption, trying to raise the tax base, uh, to make the old, he was making the old way of doing things impossible to make way for a new sustainable future. India wouldn't be able to survive if they didn't raise their tax base. So the old way of doing things had to go. And it was risky. Uh, farmers to tra- change out transactions that day, they left their crops, they lost crops. Uh, businesses went under. Uh, people actually died. Uh, there were insane lines at bank tellers, and people were trampled trying to get in to tr- change out this currency. But Modi knew that he had to do it fast because if he gave people enough time, he wouldn't actually stop the problem. He would just move it around. Money would be laundered, and so it had to happen fast. He had to make the old way of doing things absolutely impossible. And that's exactly what the passage we just read is all about. We live in a world that's broken. It's broken by sin, uh, and it's not working the way it should. But Paul wants his readers to know that on the cross, Jesus' victory strips that world of all its power. So just like Modi demonetized his country, Jesus, through the gospel, demonetizes the power of sin. And, and not only does he, he take this, this sinful world we live in and he strips it of all its power, he creates a new community from people in that broken world and he gives them a new identity and then he sends them back into that broken world to save them. See, this is where we're going today. If you don't hear anything else today, you can hear this and then cash out. This is, this is the point of this passage. God's work of redemption, it doesn't stop at the cross. It continues through the new community he sends back into a broken world. Let me say that again. God's work of redemption doesn't stop at the cross. It continues through a new community he sends back into a broken world. So if we're going to see that, if we're going to understand how Jesus' victory does this, how it invites us into this ministry of reconciliation, we need to understand three things. First, Paul wants us to see how Jesus' victory uh, robs a sin-filled world of all its power. He wants us to see Jesus' uh, victory over a sin-filled world. 
Then he, it's not just seeing things. He, he wants you to do something with that information. He wants you to build your identity on that new community that Jesus' victory creates. And then after that happens, after you see Jesus' victory, you see the new identity it gives you, he says something scandalous. And it's kind of outside our passage, but I, I picked the passage, so I can do whatever I want. Um, this is six one, As God's co-workers... As God's co-workers, you become a cubicle buddy with God. And I don't mean that to be crass. That's a scandalous thing to say. He's saying this, join God in his ministry of reconciliation for a sin-filled world. So let's understand it. Let's jump in to see Jesus' victory over this world. So the world that, that we're jumping in the middle of 2 Corinthians. But uh, the, the world that Paul is writing to is not that different from ours. Um, so Corinth was a major city in the Roman Empire. Uh, it's kind of like, I think it's the closest equivalent in America. It's like Chicago. So he's writing to a group of successful people who went to all the best schools. They had amazing jobs. They were hustling and they were winning in their society. And they were not happy with Paul. Uh, the year is about AD 56. Paul just gets out of prison in Ephesus. And the people in Corinth heard about Paul's stay in prison. And they weren't too thrilled. They liked their heroes not to be arrested. Um, And so they write this letter to Paul that we don't have, and they kind of air some of their complaints. They're saying, hey, Paul, like, look, we have, we're we're in a major city, all right, we're hustling, we're moving, and you know what, like, we just have some concerns, like, are you going to really be able to communicate in our important world? Um, So Paul, like, you got arrested. We're not too thrilled about that. That's kind of shame-filled. We, we don't really, we'd rather not deal with that. Uh, another thing, too, we really value uh, great public speaking, and we're not too thrilled with your public speaking. Um, so if you could, Paul, could you please just provide with, a, like, a references, like a resume? We just would really like to see how you're doing. And so Paul responds back to that request with this letter, and it's really funny. He starts poking holes at their value system, and he makes this statement. He's saying, hey, The reason you're even asking for these things, it's because you misunderstand what I'm trying to do. You misunderstand what an apostle is. And not only that, though, he pushes it even a little bit further. He says, you actually misunderstand the gospel. So not only does Paul refuse to dance, he starts poking holes in their world. Um, So in the Roman Empire, the highest honor any citizen could get was this award called the Corona Moralis. I went to public school, didn't take Latin. Sorry if I butchered that. But it literally means uh, the wall crown. So in, uh, when Romans went to battle and they were trying to get over a wall, they would throw up ladders and some crazy soldiers would be the first ones over the wall. And assuming that they survived that really dumb thing to do, they were given this medal. And it was the highest recognition for a Roman citizen. Like, you had this, you were our hero. And the Corinthians are like, hey, Paul, can you be like that person? And so Paul responds in 2 Corinthians 11, and it's kind of funny. This is what he says. Look, if you want me to boast, sure, I'll, I'll boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is to be praised forever, knows I'm not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of Damascus guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall 
and slipped through his hands. Here's what he's saying. You want me to be the guy that's the first one over the wall? I totally was the first over the wall. I got over that wall and I ran away. He's starting to poke fun at their value system. He's saying like, hey, what you want, what you, what you respect, that world that you live in values the individual and that's totally antithetical to the Bible. Jesus' death on the cross strips that of all its power. This is what he says in verse 12. He says this, look, We're not trying to commend ourselves to you. Here's what he's saying. If you want me to play ball, if you want me to live according to your standard and do what you want, you're not going to get the gospel. But here's what he's saying. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you, but we're trying to give you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you might have an answer for those uh, who take pride in what is seen rather than what's the heart. He's saying, hey, you live in this world. I'm trying to gently bring you out of it. And here's what he's saying. He's, he's saying, you've misunderstood the gospel. Let me help you get it. Christ, verse 14, Christ's love compels us, literally holds us captive. Because we're convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. One of the dangers of reading the Bible, especially if the verse is kind of familiar, is you just kind of blow through it. So I want to read that again slowly. Paul's giving them the gospel. He's giving them the good news. Listen to what he says at the end of verse 14. One died for all. And you kind of expect him next to say, therefore, we're all alive. But he doesn't. He says this, therefore, all died. Here's what he's helping the Corinthians to understand. You lived in this world, but on, on the cross when Jesus died, that death was applied to you. You're dead to that broken world, its broken systems, its way that elevates the individual over the community. You're dead to that. And this is what happens next. And we're, and, uh, in verse 15, he died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised saying your death on the cross, Jesus' death on the cross for you rescues you from this world where it's all about you. See, in the Roman Empire, uh, this whole idea of the individual as hero, I mean, that was totally what, that was their worldview. Um, Andy Crouch, the author, makes this statement that the Roman Empire was a place that traded personhood for power. They traded personhood for power. So the Latin word persona, which is where we get our English word person, uh, in Rome was actually, it, it wasn't something everybody was. So if we were 2,000 years ago in Rome, not everybody in this room would be a persona. Uh, that was a status that was reserved for people in good high standings. Uh, it would have been people who were the um, pater familia, the head of household, people with money. Uh, so if you were a woman and you had lots of money, you may have been recognized as a person, but most likely you would have been property. Uh, and if you were a child, that, if you were the child of someone who was a person, you were not necessarily guaranteed to be a person. Uh, only if you were going to inherit their money. See that? They, they connected personhood to power. Uh, and, and as a result, like slaves. Think about slavery in that context. Uh, if slaves, there was very little chance they would ever be recognized as a person. And so Romans were very practical people. So they wouldn't even really give them names often. And if they did give them names, they were just names like useful, Onesimus, or the order of birth they were born in, uh, Tartus, Quartus, Quintus, just numbering them. We don't even, we don't even care about you. You're not a person. 
That's not all that far away from the society we live in today. We live in a context that trades personhood for power. And Crouch points this out uh, by, uh, by inviting us to imagine this. Think of, think of all the people that you work with, the people you interact with on a daily basis. How many of those people know your extended family? How many of those people know your immediate family? How many of those people know the, the, the context and the setting that you were born in and you were shaped out of and what made you you? Actually, and Crouch puts it a little farther. He says if you are in a setting where the people that you interact with on a daily basis know your immediate family, they know your extended family, you're actually probably quite low on the social ladder. And think about how we even talk about ourselves. We talk about my brand. Like, I, people don't have brands. Companies have brands. We, we totally, what it means to be a winner in the modern world is to you trade your personhood for power. You accumulate, and no one really knows you. You're just a winner. You've broken free from the shackles that hold us all back. You rose to the top. You're the first one over the wall. You're a winner. And this, this setting that we all live in has all kinds of nasty, unintended consequences. Uh, Vivek Murthy, he was a former Surgeon General. Uh, he just resigned in 2017. He wrote this in the Harvard Business Review. He's not, I don't think he's an emotional person. This is what he said. During my years caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes. It was loneliness. That's the unintended consequence and living in a world that trades personhood for power. And now as you see this, now you see the context that Paul's writing to and the context we live in, verse 17 becomes absolutely amazing. And you can start to see why the gospel spread across the Roman Empire like wildfire. Listen to verse 17. Therefore, if anyone, anyone is in Christ... They are a new creation. Paul is saying this. You guys used to live in this old world. This old world where everybody served themselves. And people traded personhood for power. But now Jesus is bringing about this new creation. This new creation. And he's not serving himself. He's serving others. And he's actually powerful. And he traded his power to restore your personhood. When, when, when Paul says that you're new creation, he's not saying when you become a Christian, you become a tree or you become a lake or a fish. What he's saying is this. In, in the opening chapters of Genesis, uh, the writer of Genesis spends this much time talking about like creation. Like, so, okay, God made, God made water, God made land, God made animals, and then he spends this much time talking about people. He is rushing through creation to get to the crowning achievement of creation, man and women. And now if you are in Christ, you have been rescued out of a world that is not life-giving but is life-taking, and you have been made new creation. You are new people. Your personhood is restored. And he's saying this, not if a rich male citizen is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ. There is no discrimination in this gospel. The gospel is good news for everyone. It's an invitation that anyone, anyone, regardless of background, regardless of how society treats you, regardless of of whether you're rich, poor, 
Like, whoever you are, this is good news that you can come and be made new. Be recognized by the king of the universe as a new creation. And he's saying this, that totally takes all the power out of the old world we used to live in. It's impossible for us to go back to this setting where we're trying to do this dog-eat-dog, elevate the individual, let's live for ourselves. Paul's saying this, no, that's not who we are. This is what he's saying. Build your identity on that new community that Jesus' victory creates. So if you look at this passage, this passage doesn't tell you to do anything. This passage tells you who you are. The Christian life is not an effort to do and perform and to be a type of person. The, the, The heart of the Christian battle is to believe you are what God's word says you are. We do not fake it till we make it. We are new creation and the more you believe that, the more you start living and acting out of that reality. Do you trust what God says about you? If you're in this room and you've repented of your sins and you've trusted Jesus, you are new creation even if you don't feel like it. And how did he make you new creation? This is really cool. Uh, This is verse 19. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. How? Not counting people's sins against them. So the Bible has a ton of words for sins. There's some words for sins uh, that uh, talk about, like the word sin itself. You're trying to like hit this mark, but you just fall short. You fail. You are weak, but you are really trying. That's sin. The other one is, and uh, I guess you could say iniquity would be the best way we'd have to describe it. Like you really were trying to be good, but you within yourself, not you weren't just weak. You're broken, and so you can't actually hit the mark you're trying to hit. There's another word for sin, though, and this is the word that's used here. It's that you weren't even aiming at the mark. You were like, oh, is God that way? I'm going to go that way. No, thank you. Oh, is God telling me what to do? He's telling me to walk on this path? I'm going to walk on this path. And this is what Paul wants you to see clearly here. He doesn't hold that against you. That makes you new. We had a credit card, and we were just racking up all kinds of debt, and the bill came due. It was like a sin now, pay later kind of thing. And God says, there's no bill due here. And that makes you new. The weight, the pressure, the shame, everything associated with that is not true for you anymore. If you're in Christ, you are not your failures. Sin does not have the last word. No matter how real the struggle, it is not the truest thing about you. If you are in Christ... The truest thing about you is that you are new creation. Old things have passed away and new things have come. This is all from God. And this isn't a solo project, by the way. That's a very Western idea. Like, it's a very Western idea that, like, it's just me and Jesus hanging out. I don't need other people. I'm just, just my relationship with God. And, 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 like, I'm just in the desert by myself with him. No, no, no. This is a community project. That new creation is a community. It's a group of people. Uh, this is an echo back to Genesis where the writer of Genesis, uh, right after men and women are created, he tells them this. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
And so now God is looking at that broken creation and he's filling it with new creation. This is a fulfillment back to that. You can't do that by yourself. You can't fill creation by yourself. You need others. This is a community. You're not just building your identity on the fact that you're new creation. You're building your identity on the fact that you belong to a community where everyone here who trusts Jesus is also new creation. And this is where Paul starts to get crazy. This is what he says here. That new creation is going to save the world. That's nuts, right? And look at this. Look at, um, look at verse 19 again. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We're therefore Christ's ambassadors as though we were make, as though God were making his appeal through us. And then verse 6 1, as God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. Here's what Paul says. First, you want to see Jesus' victory, how it just totally strips this old broken world of its power, and then how he makes this new community of people uh, who are not subject to that power anymore. They're brand new. And then what does God do? He makes a perfect circle. He takes those people and he puts them back in the broken community to save that community, to rescue his broken world. Christianity is not about playing it safe. It's a dangerous world out there. Let's lock ourselves up. We'll build our own communities. We will uh, have our own roller rinks. We'll make our own movies, our own music. We are done with you guys out there. We're safe in here. This breaks down us versus them. You cannot have us versus them if you understand this passage. Uh, What does it look like to have the ministry of reconciliation? Listen to these words Paul uses to what we do in that ministry. Here's what he says. Verse 11, we persuade. We persuade. You cannot persuade someone if you are mad at them. All you can do is yell at them. You cannot be winsome and angry. We persuade. Why do we persuade? Look at verse 14. For Christ's love compels us. That word compels actually literally means Holds, holds us captive. You have been kidnapped by Jesus' love. He duct taped you to a chair with his love. And then what does he do with that love? We go out into that broken world as Christ's ambassadors, as though God himself were working through us. Salvation is the ministry of redemption. His, redemptive history is continuing today through this new community. It didn't stop at the cross. God is saving the world through this new community, and he's inviting you to work with him on this process. And there's two things that this looks like. The first thing it looks like is unbelievers. He's saying that we're pleading with people to be reconciled with God, but it doesn't stop there. Everybody in this room, whether you've been saved for 40 years, 10 minutes, however long you've been a Christian, we are in need of this ministry of reconciliation. So in your Christian life, you need both unbelievers and you need believers around you to really do this well. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'm really glad you're here. You're keeping us honest. You're helping us to do this. This is great. And so as a church community, here's what we want to do with this, with this truth. We want to give you an avenue for application. Um, and so what we're doing is we are relaunching community groups. And so 
for many of you, you've known this church has had community groups in various different aspects. They've been called life groups, small groups, home groups throughout the years. We just picked one and we decided community groups. And we are trying to give you a rhythm to apply this. Um, I can say structure because I, I just got out of my 20s. And so I think when you're in your 20s, structure is like this terrible thing. But it's good. Um, we say this, hey, community isn't just a nice add-on to the Christian life. It's at the core identity of who we are. And we need to cultivate that. So community groups are going to be a place where we cultivate gospel-centered relationships. We want to do that as a church. We want to have a structure and a rhythm for that. Because if you don't have a structure, your priorities often just fall through the wayside. I, I, really, I really prioritize good health, but I don't work out. So do I really prioritize good health? We want to give you guys a structure. We're going we're gonna to give you a way to actually apply this. And so here's what we're doing. We're retooling how we've done community groups. Because they've been good throughout the years. There are people here who've been part of small groups, and they've talked about just real relationships that have happened here, real ministry, real life on life, people helping each other, loving one another, walking together, tears shed over food, awesome stuff. There's some of that in our church, for sure. And there's others in our church who are like, wait, we have small groups? I didn't know about that. How long have we done small groups? And so what we want to do is we want to just like kind of just start over. We want to get all on the same page, and we want to say, hey, this is the goal we're heading toward together. We are this new community in a broken world, and so we want to really stir up each other, love one another, cultivate gospel-centered relationships so that we really can have this ministry of reconciliation with one another and with the broken city God's called us to live in. And so here's what we're doing. They're going to be every week. They're going to be every week, but they're going to be a rhythm. They're going to start next week, and they're going to stop, like, the first week of December, right before Christmas. Um, and so for some of you, you're like, oh my goodness, that's just one more thing to do. We're going to talk about that in a second. Um, but what we want to do, we, we want to, there's also what I'm asking to say, hey, when you care about community groups, there's a, a paradigm shift. Many of you have been faithfully serving this church and you're busy and you're tired. And this just feels like one more thing you're asking me to do. Like, come on, really? But, I think that we're really grateful for all the things that people have been doing to serve behind the scenes. Um, And those are selfless acts that this church really couldn't exist if people didn't do that. But when the Bible talks about ministry, the ministry of reconciliation, it's always in the context of relationships. There's no spiritual gift of driving the church bus. There's no spiritual gift of, I have the spiritual gift of putting donuts in a straight line. Um, This all, this, all the gifts that God gives to serve his church are relational, encouragement. Uh, and so we want to say, hey, ministry at this church is relational. It's getting to know people. It's being known and knowing others and reminding them of this good news, of Jesus' victory in our lives. And so that's the point. That's where, we're, that's where we're headed as a group. We want to say, hey, this is a priority. And so we're going to make some sacrifices. Some of you are in seasons of life where this just really isn't realistic. You have jobs. You can't really commit to that. Come as often as you can. That, that's fine. It's not like, oh my gosh, I missed two weeks. I'm out of the group. No, no, no. These are, this is an on-ramp for community at Compass Church. We want you, anyone is always welcome whenever. Um, some of you are too busy because your kids play four sports. Um, you're involved with all these other after-school things. Uh, and I want to challenge you that yeah, you may not have time for community because your priorities might be out of whack. 
And so I'm asking you to just put your priorities on the table. Is this really what we want our lives to look like? Is this really helping us get toward that goal of being that new creation community in a broken world? Or are we actually just accumulating stuff, being busy? What are we really doing? For some of you, that's a tough conversation you need to have. For others of you, you can't do it, and you're too busy, and don't feel guilty. But this is how we do life together. We want to make this a clear on-ramp of like, hey, we believe and we value this as our identity, and so we are going to make sacrifices to make this work. And so uh, another thing, that another change that's coming to these things, uh, we're making sure that they, they have a schedule, that we're meeting at the same time, so that if someone comes and says, hey, I really like this church, what does it mean to belong? And we're like, oh, we do life together through community groups. Great, how do I join one? I don't really know. No, 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 we, have, we want you to know, this. hey, this is where they meet, this is when they meet. So they're going to meet in the same place throughout the semester. Because it's really confusing if, like, the first Wednesday of the month you're meeting in the alley behind Uprise Bakery, and the third Wednesday of the month you're, reading, you're meeting in Troy's Garage. Like, it's just really hard for people to come and join that. But if we have them at the same time, same place, there can be a rhythm. People can join them. So we want to get everybody on the same page. And we also want to spread this ministry out. Uh, we, we are having leaders... Um, who are leading community groups, and we are going to, as a pastoral staff, walk with them. Uh, We believe this is where discipleship and life is going to happen. As a pastoral team, we can't meet all the needs in this room. It would be impossible. But we can find people who will help meet all the needs. And so that's how this helps us do that. Um, And so there are leaders that we'll be walking with and through uh, this process, and they are awesome, safe people uh, who would love to have you in their community group. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to put you in an awkward situation next week. Um, This church loves donuts. And so one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to not just lay the donuts out next week on the table. We're going to spread them out throughout various tables. And at all those tables, community group leaders are going to be there with cards inviting you to come join their community group. And so if you want to get a donut, you have to go through the awkward exchange of talking to someone and being invited to their group. We really believe in this, and we really think it can be beneficial to your walk. So we're willing to do that for you. Um, And so that's next week. I also know that this quick blurb at the end of a service did not answer all the questions that everybody has about community groups. How are we doing it? What's it going to look like? Um, It's not going to be perfect. It's going to be awkward. You're going to find yourself on a Thursday night in someone's house that you barely know and you have nothing to talk about with. Hang in there. This is where we're headed. We're cultivating relationships. That word is chosen intentionally. It takes time. You don't just cultivate something overnight. It takes weeks, seasons. This is where we're headed, though. We want to stir up this identity that we have, that we are, it was not by accident that God put this community here. He put us here to rescue the city we live in. And so we want to stir us up. Like, it's hard. Like, I, I live in a bubble. I, I mean, I am around a lot of Christians. I am here all the time. I know for some of you, you work and you're exhausted just being around other Christians and you come here, your gas tank is empty. And so what we want to do is we want to fill that and send you back. There are people in this room, there are doctors, there are engineers, there are mechanics, farmers, that you're around people who the old cliche is true. You're the only Bible, you're the only Jesus they're going to see. And we want to stir that up within you to that, hey, my identity is new creation who's inviting people out of this broken world into this new community. And so Sunday morning, 
is, is great, and it's, but it's not enough. We need to do life together. And so this is that rhythm that we're going to be doing as a group. We're saying, hey, God has called us into the, the world. We're not trying to get out of the world. We're not trying to create a holy huddle here. We're trying to go deeper in that world, and we want to do it together. So let's do this together. It's going to be awkward, but we're not going to abandon each other, okay? We're in this together. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the victory your son won over this broken world. I thank you for the good news that his victory makes us new. That you don't count our sin against us. That's not our identity, but this new creation community is our identity. And God, I pray that you would help us to really take that identity seriously and go out into the world, love our neighbors um, as a means to plead with them to be reconciled back to you. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.